conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show. I'm your host this week, Eleanor Goldfield. And in a special episode today, we dig into the back and forth potential for a Class 1 railroad strike. And at first blush, it may seem an overly specific and niche topic to dedicate an entire show to, but in fact, in more ways than one, this struggle exemplifies the power of workers and how much corporations and their media lackeys fear our collective power particularly when that collective power represents some $2 billion a day in economic leverage. First, I outline some of the most recent happenings on this issue, and then I sit down with Mark Burroughs, Railroad Workers United member and a 41-year veteran of the railroad industry. He joins the show to discuss the ongoing assault on rail workers, not only from their corporate bosses, but from the corporate media as well. Burroughs outlines the lived experiences of workers like him and how workplace demands have risen while safety standards and wages have fallen. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. Hello and welcome to the Project Censored radio show. I'm your host this week, Eleanor Goldfield. And before we dive into the rad interview with Mark Burroughs, I wanted to give some updates on the situation with the potential railroad strike, the Class 1 railroad strike, because there have been some very important updates between the time that I sat down with Mark for the interview and the time that you're listening to this in mid-October. So, Basically, what I'm pulling from now are reports from the RWU, the Railroad Workers United newsletter. And so first off, uh, on October 11th, on Tuesday, October 11th, the BMWED, a union of significant size, it's part of this RWU coalition, voted against ratification of the tentative national agreement which was which was hammered out by the presidential emergency board back in September and as the editor notes in this newsletter quote this is the first union of any size to vote down the tentative agreement. The BMWED president, Tony D. Cardwell, said in a statement, the result of this vote indicates that there is a lot of work to do in order to establish goodwill and improve the morale that has been broken by the railroads executives and Wall Street hedge fund managers. The membership voted in record numbers on this tentative agreement, exhibiting that they are paying close attention and are engaged in the process. BMWED members are concerned with the direction of their employers and the mismanagement and greed in which they have consistently implemented and are united in their resolve to improve their working conditions across the entire Class 1 rail network, end quote. And following this, this statement, this vote, on October 13th, there came a newsletter from the RWU that said, quote, based upon feedback from working railroaders of the operating crafts, the steering committee of the Crosscraft Rail Workers Solidarity Group, RWU, voted unanimously to urge members of the operating crafts to vote down the tentative agreement when they receive their ballots in the coming weeks. This comes after the RWU had stated their opposition to the tentative agreement based upon that presidential emergency board recommendation, which basically was Biden and friends 
trying desperately to avert a railroad strike because it would have been it could would be so detrimental to the economy, uh, but basically did nothing to address the rail workers' demands. And uh, in fact, in that newsletter, RWU writes, quote, and if the rail carriers and rail unions cannot do better at the bargaining table by December 7th, rail workers would and should be free to exercise their right to strike, fulfilling their desire to do so as expressed by the membership last summer. So this is this is a, a a big a big move, basically saying that the you know that Biden and friends did not do anything to address their concerns, and so they are uh, suggesting a no vote uh, on this. And actually, there was a a list of ten reasons to vote no that was sent out to trainmen and engineers. And I'm just going to share a little bit from that. It says, quote, in this round of bargaining, railroad workers have demanded, you'll, and you'll have to excuse me because I have a really hard time saying railroad workers. So if I trip up, have yourself a little chuckle and we'll move on. So it says, in, quote, in this round of bargaining, railroad workers have demanded safe, adequate staffing levels, adequate time off when needed, not when the company says we can take it, paid sick days, affordable health care, Reimbursement of expensive, unavoidable costs incurred while traveling out of town, cost of living adjustments to keep up with inflation, and quality of life improvements. And the current tentative agreement, the TA, that was hammered out by the Presidential Emergency Board, does not deliver these demands. And they go on to say that if adopted, the tentative agreement, number one, further reduces staffing le levels. Two, ignores workers' repeated requests to control their own lives. Three, does not allow rail workers to take their lives back, as in no paid sick days and, uh, you know, medical care visits and things like that, which is an astonishing thing to do during a pandemic. Of course, it's horrific at any point, uh, but particularly, you know, in, in, in times of a pandemic. It would also increase health care cost. Increase. <laughs> <laughs> Fifth, it provides zero increase to non-taxable meal expenses. Six, provides no cost of living adjustment. Seven, imposes raises that do not necessarily increase your annual wages, which is something that Democrats are in particular really good at, right? Saying that they're going to do something, putting it uh, in in black and white to look nice. But then when you read between the lines, when you read the, you know, the fine print, it really does nothing to, uh, to actually address what you take home. And they write, with a loss of claims for many areas with the implementation of self-protecting pools and the significant increase in annual health care contributions, wages in many cases at best will stay where they are, if not drop a little. The eighth point that uh, they they say that the TA that the tentative agreement would do would continue the loss of operating craft jobs. Number nine, it would spell the end of lucrative agreement arbitraries, and ten fails to provide for two scheduled days off at all. And this is something that Mark will go into in more detail in terms of the the, the structure of these ridiculous work schedules. So I wanted to share that because that's an important update that the RWU is suggesting that members vote down the tentative agreement and that if the carriers and the rail unions can't come to a better 
a decision, a better agreement before December 7th, which is that deadline, then rail workers have the right and the ability to strike. And that is very powerful. I also just wanted to highlight when reading through those vote no, and this is why, when highlighting some of the things that they're that they're demanding and that they that they need and uh, that have pushed them to this point, I think it's all things that we can relate to, right? And this is why I think that this story demands a full episode because. It's not specific to rail workers. Of course, there are things that are specific, like, uh, you you know, things that are specific to engineers or trainmen or things like that, that are industry uh, specific. But the larger points, affordable health care, paid sick days, time off when needed, safe working conditions. I mean, these are things that anybody in any industry, in any job, in any workplace can relate to. And probably lacks. I mean, I actually don't know anybody in this country that doesn't want and need affordable health care or paid sick days or things like that. So this is something that echoes and reverberates through every single industry. And class one railroads are huge. I mentioned in the introduction, this is $2 billion a day estimated that would that would be lost if these workers went on strike. That is the power that these workers have. And that is colossal, which is why the PEB, the Presidential Emergency Board, even stepped in. It's not because because they care about the workers. That's been made astonishingly clear, not just because of this tentative agreement, but even before. If our government really cared about workers, we wouldn't have so many people trying desperately to unionize their workplaces. We wouldn't have so many people going on strike. We wouldn't have so many people quitting, which I don't like the phrase quiet quitting. It's really just, hi, I demand some basic human rights. (laughs) Uh, so, So we wouldn't have all that if our government, if our system gave a bleep about workers. And so this this organizing that we see happening with these rail workers is profound because it is something that we can really glom onto and say, hey, me too. This is how I feel in my workplace. And wow, this is something that we can pull from. And if Folks, remember the conversation that I had with one of the workers at Trader Joe's who was uh, working to unionize her workplace, and they eventually did unionize. They voted yes on a union for that store. She talked about how she had, how her and her coworkers had gone to different, different folks from different industries, teachers and restaurant workers and said, hey, how did you guys organize? How did you set up a union and really pulled pulled from their experiences in order to do it themselves in her store, in her workplace. And so if you're listening to this and you're not a rail worker, I I mean, I'm not, (laughs) I think and I hope that there's a lot that you can pull from this because there's so much that rings true that just feels visceral when I, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking when I worked in studios and when I worked in, in, in different workplaces, this is something that is so intersectional. It is so American. (laughs) This is very typically the United States today.
And so I, I wanted to share that because I think that context is important also because that update is important. I mean, what kind of what kind of show would this be if I didn't mention that <laughs> that this huge update that they had that they're suggesting a no vote on this. And there was another newsletter that came out that the same day actually as this as this email uh, suggesting members vote down the tentative agreement. And it was titled RWU supports public ownership of the rails. And I really like this newsletter, too, because it really shows how these folks are thinking. And it reminds me also of things that I've seen and heard in the past with people who have been striking, not just for their health care, for their wages, for their lived experiences and life improvements, but for those of their communities at large, for instance, when the West Virginia teachers strike started, they were talking about uh, not just their own wages and things like that, but wages and life improvements for all of the people who were employed by the state, not just teachers, and how this was something that was really reverberating through all of the, the the industries and the workers who were employed by state and local uh, governments. And this speaks of that same way of thinking, that same collective and mutualist and community way of thinking. And the, this concept of public ownership of rails is not new, and uh, the, in the newsletter it says that this was considered more than a decade ago in this space, but of course this is a concept that's been, been bandied about for quite some time. And uh, t- to quote from the newsletter, on-time performance is in the toilet. Shipper complaints are at all-time highs, passenger trains are chronically late, commuter services are threatened, and the rail industry is hostile to practically any passenger train expansion. The workforce has been decimated as jobs have been eliminated, consolidated, and contracted out, ushering in a new previously unheard of era where workers can neither be recruited nor retained. Locomotive, railcar, and infrastructure maintenance has been cut back. Health and safety has been put at risk. Morale is at an all-time low. The ongoing debacle in national contract bargaining sees the carriers, after decades of record profits and record low operating ratios, refusing to make even the slightest concessions to the workers who, contrary to what the Class 1s may state, have made them their riches. Since the North American private rail industry has shown itself incapable of doing the job, it is time for this invaluable transportation infrastructure to be brought under public ownership. End quote. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Now, back to our program. So just in that, in that little paragraph... They're highlighting so many issues, uh, talking about the issues with, with the, uh, with passengers, with with service of you know delivering goods and things like that. So they're not just talking. And, and obviously, public ownership is not going to it's not going to make rail workers bucket loads of money, right? This is not a a, a self serving endeavor in that sense, in the way that we would think of it from a capitalist perspective, right? That. You only do things because you want to make yourself a, a, a bucket of gold. 
This is really speaking, how can we make these communities better? How can we make uh, things run on time? And how can we make sure that people get the supplies that they need when they need them? How can we make sure that 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 people have jobs and enjoy those jobs? Uh, how can we... This is really a communal perspective. This is a much more holistic way of looking at something like transportation. And yeah, of course, it absolutely should be publicly owned. This is this is something that in my in my other home uh, has been chiseled away at. Sweden had a state-owned rail system that has now slowly been privatized. And I can tell you, when I was a kid, I, I know I sound like a grandma, when back in my day, but this is true. When I was a kid, trains ran on time. Thing You could count on it. You knew I'm going to get to the station, I'm going to buy my ticket, I'm going to get on the train, and it's going to run like clockwork. Now, you try to take a train, even a short train, uh, like an hour train. Oh, well, this one's canceled for the day. Oh, that one's running late. And that's actually it's leaving from five uh, platforms over. So if you don't get there in time, that's too bad. You missed your train. Oh, and if you have a connection, you're you're really up the creek because that's this train's going to get in late. And, da, 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 da. Uh, and there have been just an impressive amount of failures because of the privatization of the railways. And this is something that, of course, the U.S. knows very well. Uh, I think anybody listening to this who's ever taken Amtrak can can relate to this. And it's the same, This this it's going in, in that direction in Sweden. And while that's happening, uh, at the same time in the U.S., we see these rail workers pushing for their basic human rights of a living wage, uh, access to health care and things like that. At the same time, they're saying, let's also demand better rail systems for everybody, for the passengers, for the shippers, for the receivers. Let's make sure that everybody who relies and could rely on railways have a better go of it. And indeed, to 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 you know expand this conversation even further railways represent a potential for green transportation not just of goods but of humans you know imagine if we had sustainable railways and this is actually something that was brought up by Bill Moyer the founder of Backbone campaign in his work called Solutionary Rail, a people-powered campaign to electrify America's railroads and open corridors to a clean energy future. And you can actually check that out over at solutionaryrail.org. And the RWU uh, supports this this idea and is, is, is mentioned on their page, on Solutionary Rail's page, because this is a way to invest in the future, this is a, a, a stopgap, if you, if you will, in order to make our transportation more sustainable and then also address the, the, the demands of these workers, you know, the quality of life improvements. And again, not just for the rail workers, but for people in these communities that perhaps even used to be part of a rail corridor, but then were forgotten because the oh the trains don't go through there anymore, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is this is something that could have massive impacts on people far far removed from rail workers. This is something that could really address green energy in general, and a livable future. 
in terms of transportation. And so, again, (laughs) this is why there's an entire episode dedicated to this, because it has such far-reaching implications. The power of these workers, their their unwillingness to take it lying down, to to, to just accept the avarice and the, 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 the oppression that's meted out on them by hedge fund managers and by the, the the CEOs of these real companies. This is powerful. And connecting that to issues like public ownership of the railways and connecting that to larger issues like uh, health and safety, this is huge and so important. And so that's something to also keep in mind uh, at, when we, when we, hear about strikes, when we hear about potentials for strikes, think about the echoes, think about the reverberations. This isn't a just about some people who demand some paid sick days. Uh, this is about all of us collectively as workers. This is about all of us collectively as Americans and our access, not just to a better life now, but to a better life in the future. So with those updates and that context and consideration in mind, we will now head to the interview with rail veteran Mark Burroughs. Thank you, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Mark Burroughs who was hired out as a brakeman at the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, now the Union Pacific in Chicago in 1974, and soon became a locomotive engineer. He worked at the SOO line Canadian Pacific Railway from 1991 until he retired in December 2015. He was also active in the United Transportation Union's 47-day strike in 1994 and served as the delegate for Local 1433 at the UTU's final convention in 2011 and the inaugural convention of the Sheet Metal Air Rail and Transportation Workers Union Transportation Division in 2014. He has been a member of RWU for over 10 years and served as co-chair and organizer in the past. And he now contributes a regular commentary to and is the editor of the quarterly newsletter for RWU, The Highball. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So there is just so much to discuss, and we could sit here for days uh, and dig into this corruption, greed, and words I can't say on air. But I want to start off with uh, kind of a a very sharp juxtaposition, uh, just so people know what we're looking at. According to a collection of data compiled by the Groundwork Collaborative, a handful of major rail companies reported more than $10 billion in buybacks and dividends over the first six months of 2022. And this comes after record profits in general. BNSF made $1.7 billion net income just in the fourth quarter of 2021. And back in May, at the same time, The Hill reported that over the last six years, the leading freight carriers laid off 45,000 employees, or nearly 30% of their combined workforce. Most of the layoffs came before the pandemic, which ushered in a huge demand for shipped items. Uh, And at the same time, rail carriers are pushing remaining workers beyond limits that are safe and ethical, uh, limits that don't only don't only just affect the workers and their families, but entire communities. Uh, For instance, there's the push to eliminate two-person crews on class one trains, making the work of ensuring safe transportation of hazardous and dangerous materials a one-person job, a very tired and overworked one-person job. So that's just 
a, a, a little brief snapshot uh, that you can dig into more, but could you talk about this juxtaposition between these record profits and the rail workers uh, work realities? Well, you could you could uh, you could put an equal sign right there uh, between the uh, record obscene profits and the um, uh, the the barbaric, unethical, and I I would add immoral working conditions that that rail workers uh, work under. I, I mean, it, uh, it, it it was barbaric when I managed to get out of there, uh, you know, five five plus years ago. I, I felt like I was getting released from prison and uh, and and and, it, and it's only gotten worse. And and this is a common thing in, in, in all industries. I mean, speed up takes takes different forms, whether whether you're speeding up an assembly line or or brutalizing warehouse workers at, at Amazon. In, in the context of the railroad, it, 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 it's about just maximizing production exploitation out of fewer and fewer uh, human beings. And, 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 and everywhere it's the same thing uh, uh, to, to pay blood money over time to fewer and fewer employees and, and work them to death. That's always more cost effective just on the benefits alone of, of the reduced bare bone minimal staffing. I appreciate that you said that it was barbaric when you worked there because I think it's important to highlight that um, this, this is not a new story. Uh, in the sense that railroad workers have been pushed, kicked, betrayed, and abused by the industry for a long time, uh, and it's just that now this is this is bubbling up to a point where it can't be ignored uh, any longer. But I I want to dig in more to to specifically like that barbarism uh, that you mentioned. And one rail worker who I who I saw had posted online said that uh, in the midst of a pandemic. He had to work extra hours without fair pay. He slept in his car uh, and would work too soon after a long shift in unsafe conditions. He missed doctor's visits, family's funerals, uh, missed events and things with his kids. And so this this is a reality that I think a lot of people don't know about. And so it's not like these people are working at uh, a Starbucks. You know, this is like a mobile workplace, shifting schedules, I mean, can you talk about some of the some of that barbarism that, that you that you touched on? So when I started, a typical uh, switching crew would be three ground ground persons and an engineer. And sometimes the engineer would have a fireman. Obviously, we weren't shoving shoveling coal anymore, but uh, uh, um, firemen would float between being set up as engineers. And, and uh, so, so if, if you were in a fireman status, you could serve as an assistant engineer. And so sometimes you would actually have a five, five member crews and, and that would be on road trains or in the yard. And this made for a semi-dignified working operation. Uh, uh, um, I mean, we, we'd flat switch in the yard and it'd be like poetry in motion uh, when, when everybody was in sync. And even then, a lot of us, especially when you're new, when you start out, you're on this 24 seven extra board um, you're on call 24 hours, seven days, uh, go to work on two hours notice, usually most of the time. And the difference was back then you could work, you, you could binge work a lot. But then when you wanted to take time off, uh, you wanted to go to a concert, uh, your, your kid was having a play, 
your your other kid was having a ball game. You could do that. There, 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 there was sufficient reserve manpower. It was just kind of an unwritten understanding. Work, work, work like a dog, but then take off when you, you know, when you needed to. And, and uh, so that was the trade-off. And, and we all kind of accepted it. Uh, then o- over the years, th- that just started getting squeezed more. The, the three-ground person became two-ground person and a utility man who, uh, who would float between work and being the third man with this crew and the third person with that crew. Then engineer, conductor only, you know, with utility men floating around. Then they got rid of the utility men. And, and then around the mid-90s, they started saying, oh, you can't lay off. You can only lay off uh, one day a month. And, and, and this is when the barbarism just really set in, where, where you're just working around the clock. Federal, federal law, we would have to have eight hours off duty. This prior to 2008, we, we would have to uh, require that we had, had to have eight hours off duty. Well, that didn't include the two-hour call. So you, you, could, you could work from eight to four, drive home, maybe get a bite to eat. And, and, and they're calling you in six hours to come back to work at midnight. So we called that spinning, eight on, eight off, eight on, eight off. The law says you can only work for 12 hours, uh, meaning you can only turn, turn a wheel for 12 hours. And, and, and back then, if you, if, if, if you worked 12 hours, you'd get uh, 10 hours rest. There, there was a period, uh, there were a couple weeks where I was getting brutalized, where, where me and another coworker tallied it up. We actually worked over 100, 100 hours in a given week, okay? And we're fatigued. We're running through your neighborhood uh, with ammonia and, and hazardous commodities. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Stoner for the cross in the name of God. Bloodshed, genocide, rape and fraud Written to the pages of the law, good law The cold continent latchkey child Ran away one day and started acting foul King of where the wild things are, daddy's proud Cause the Roman Empire done passed it down Imported and tortured the workforce And never healed the wounds or shook the curse off Now the grown-up Goliath nation holding So in 2008, after decades of you, you know, whenever there's a derailment or major injury, the National Transportation Safety Board comes in and investigates. And, and maybe a year and a half later, they publish their report uh, before before you could access them online. You know, that might be a little paragraph in page 17 of, of the newspaper or something like that. But um, uh, for decades and, and, and they would go, what was this person's work history for the last week? Uh, uh, for the last two weeks. And, and it was not uncommon for them to come right out and say that fatigue was a contributing factor, that, that oh, Bill, the, this engineer fell asleep because he'd been turning and burning and he ran into the, he ran into the caboose and the head end crew died and the, the guys in the caboose died and fatigue was a factor. And, and sometimes they would make recommendations, but they, they don't have any teeth. But, but after just decades of f- documented fatigue-related incidents, fatalities, uh, disabling injuries, Congress passed the Rail Safety Act, giving us a little bit, 
of a breather. So instead of eight hours off, they, they, they said, oh, okay, you have to get 10 undisturbed. So, so that kind of stopped the getting called in six hours from the time you left, but they could get by that. If, if they wanted you to come back on your legally mandated rest, they would just tell you ahead of time. So, so come back here in 10 hours. And so this way they're not disturbing the 10 hours. They couldn't call you for 10 hours, but they could tell you before you left, come back in 10 hours and there's your 10 undisturbed. So, so you got a couple hours more relief. The, the federal legislation mandated that if you work six consecutive days, that you had to get 24, 24 hours off. And, and note, I say 24 hours and not a real calendar day. So then they would get around that. By the time you were getting to your sixth start in a calendar day, if you were getting close to like 10, 11 o'clock, well, they would just hold you here. We won't call this guy till not, 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 not five, five after midnight. That breaks the six consecutive calendar days, and and then boom, that, that then you're starting a new six day six day clock. They they made it six days. You get one day and or twenty four hours, and if you work seven starts, I, I think it was forty eight hours. But so so for all intents and purposes, rail workers, the vast bulk of the rail workers that that are in this current negotiating, uh, the 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 other the other major class one railroads for all intents and purposes, for the most part, are working on call 24 hours, seven days a week. And, and then to add to it, they had made these, these uh, manpower cuts before the pandemic. Then when the pandemic hit, a part of the nature of the work, you're, you're coo- if, if you're on a road train, you're, you're cooped up in a small little engine cab with, 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 with another worker. And a lot of times you're transporting in crew vans, your train dies for time. And so you have to get relieved or, or, you're, or you have to go relieve a, a train crew that has, has their, their, their legal time. And, and so a common part of the job is getting transported in these crew vans. There, there was no six foot distancing in, in these crew vans. And, and, and they were slow in implementing the CDC guidelines. At a certain point, they started mandating masks and all of that stuff. So then, then when, when they started impl- when they started uh, falling under CDC guidelines and quarantining and all that stuff, then they they were they were really shorthanded. Be- pe- people would have to take off, mandated if they tested positive, and and they were just ridiculously shorthanded. And they appealed to the federal government for a waiver to uh, um, get an exemption on decades of safety rules say if you want us to move the freight you're going to have to relax these safety rules and regulations and and then that's when they started implementing these attendance policies you you are allowed x amount of points before you get to the point of termination and and so this forces people to to come in when they're when they're sick there's a story uh about this guy on the burlington northern who who, who was not feeling right and, and he hesitated to go to the doctor because he didn't want to rack up these, these demerit points and he ended up dying of a heart attack on the engine. The, the, this is why, yeah, it, it's, it's, been, it's been accumulating for decades and, and it's just got to the point where, where it, it's just over the top. It, 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 it's really over the top and that's why when, when the engineers and conductors union put out strike authorization poll votes, they were 98, 99 percent. 
so, so that's an indication of, of the, the discontent. And we've never seen the, the people leaving the industry in the hundred people with that, that in the past would invest seniority and, and uh, invest years that they've just said, I've had it. I, I can't take it. I, I, and and uh, for the first time, one of my former co-workers signing bonuses to to offer to to people to come work that that comes and goes the last several years, depending on the, the market supply and demand. But for the first time, my, my co-worker w- was telling me that they're giving referral bonuses. And, and in the past, we would not hesitate. We would all try to get our friends on. We would try to get our, our family on. And, and now we, we, we wouldn't wish this on our worst enemy. So, so nobody's bringing family or friends in. And, and, and they're really, you know, some might try to bring their worst enemies in, but, but that, that would be about it. Yeah, no, it sounds like nothing that I would want uh, friends or family involved in either. And yeah, I had read about this this point system, the high vis policy, as as BNSF calls it, um, and as reported by the Real News, each rail worker is given a balance of thirty points. Workers who quote mark off, take unscheduled days off, receive a penalty anywhere from two to twenty five points off the balance. If the balance drops at zero at any time, the worker is subjected to disciplinary action. And the point total is then reset to 15, though. Uh, and if the balance drops to zero three times, the worker is fired. And this sounds like a really horrific, like, Hunger Games or something. Like, it sounds like a video game, like, game over. Like, it's so sick. And, like, you're, you're, I mean, you're toying with people's lives and the ability to, as you said, like, not show up to work if you are at risk of having a heart attack, which apparently this person was. And so... I appreciate you sharing those realities because that is uh, very important to understand as we talk about the context of uh, of, of these dealings. And I want to talk more about that, the insidious, insidious dealings of, and in particular, these CEOs and the industry bigwigs, firstly, in terms of what one railroad worker called, quote, corporate terrorism, holding an entire industry hostage for the sake of profit, i.e. taking advantage of global supply chain issues like war and COVID, and then worsening them through various anti-worker tactics that you've already mentioned, as well as cutting services and putting embargoes on interstate commerce. And then to add insult to injury, demonizing workers in the media uh, so that when this story is covered, it makes workers look like the bad guys. Can you Talk a little bit about that, and particularly, you know, because Project Censored talks about what the corporate media won't talk about. What is important about that that coverage that they're getting wrong? Yeah, when I saw that term corporate terrorism, I thought, wow, uh, I, I wish I would have thought of that. Yeah, but but that's exactly what it is, what, what it was, especially especially as we got close to the to, to the deadline of the most recent cooling off period, which I believe was uh, September. 16th, I believe. And, and uh, in, in, in the week or two preciding that, the carriers, uh, uh, the, oh, they're, they're not going to ship this and they're not going to ship that in anticipation of a strike. Amtrak is going to cut its long distance routes. And then, of course, you know, the local news covers this, you know, from the human interest story, the, this poor family who's stuck in Union Station. They were trying to get from point A to B to C and, and they're just stranded and, and, and it's heartbreaking. And, and, and you even hear, you know, 
farmers complaining and, 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 and shippers of different commodities complaining. And it, we're getting our story out a little bit, and, uh, but, but it's still very disproportionate. It, 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 it's still very, very disproportionate. I wanted to back up one second. There, there was just one more example of barbarism. And, 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 and so a common in, in the yards, it, it's common to have little shanties, little shacks that maybe, you know, two to three people might, might fit in at certain strategic points. These were points where the, the conductor or hindman or you person, they'd be out in the elements for a while waiting for this movement to, to finish. And so it gave them a chance, if it's 50 below wind chill, it gave them a chance to, to get out of the elements for a little bit, to just get a little refresher. Um, uh, um, if it's 100 degree plus heat index, they even had the little had little window air conditioners. And so you could you, you could cool. But part of getting through working in the elements is to get an occasional break. It's one thing to be doing physical work in 50 below and you're all bundled up with your car hearts and everything. And it's another thing. You're, you're just kind of standing still waiting. And then you're trying to make up two mile long trains and everybody's blocking each other like like, like a standoff. And, and at least they had these shanties, these little shanties in the middle of the yards where they could go and get relief. And they took those out to save a few bucks, to save on the electricity for the air conditioning, to save a few bucks for the heat. And they, they, they used to have Kubotas where when you needed to protect a shove, protect a movement in the yard, people could get in place and, and one person could take care of that. They got rid of the job. They got rid of those, for the most part, those vehicles. And so now everybody's, if, if you have to protect a movement, you're riding, hanging onto the side of a boxcar for a mile, a mile long shove. And, you know, it's one thing on a nice day, but when it's 50 below or, or 100 degrees, that, that's just an extra added difficulty added to the job needlessly so that these these um, modern day rail robber barons can make seven figure salaries for doing I don't know what. Well, yeah, I mean, they don't do anything, of course. <laughs> that's 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 their job is to do nothing and to steal not just people's livelihoods, but people's lives. I mean, what you're describing is basically it almost sounds like. Uh, and I think somebody described it this way in, in a piece that I read that it's a game of Russian roulette, like how how far can we push people before th they die, which obviously these CEOs don't uh, seem to care about, but that the whole industry goes under. And obviously that's what's, that's what we're at the precipice of now. Uh, and so, so much so that, you know, the, the Biden administration stepped in uh, the, uh, the presidential emergency board had a hearing where I thought it was really quite amazing that the rail carriers told the, the PEB, the Presidential Emergency Board, quote, capital investment and risk are the reasons for profits, not contributions by labor. In which case, I would say, then they shouldn't mind a strike because if labor is contributing nothing, then what do you have to lose? Uh, but of course, as experts on economy have pointed out, a rail strike could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day, uh, which is, of course, why Biden and friends even cared in the first place. And so that's a lot of power in the corner of railroad workers. So I'm curious, where where is the situation at right now? I mean, uh, for folks listening, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, September 29th. 
But what is the what is the feeling like? What is the, the the temperature check right now? Do you feel you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio? I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Now back to our program. So what I'm getting from talking to uh, a former co-worker, you know, people that I say I, I just went to my union meeting a couple nights ago and, and from other what I'm getting from just the, the feel on the ground from from fellow RWU members who are working and the feedback that they're getting from their co-workers, the buzz on our Facebook page, which is a, 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 is a, a sounding board, rail workers are totally dissatisfied. Now, they have not even gotten all the details. All that's come out right now is just a synopsis. And yes, uh, Biden was able to twist the uh, carrier's arms to get a, a few token pathetic bones with no meat on them for optics. Uh, so, so the union leaders can say, here, we got this and, and here we got that. But, but when you, when you unpack it, 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 it's, it, it's a whole lot of very little and a lot of things are okay. So we will discuss, uh, some, uh, a voluntary days off, but there's nothing in black and white. It's that, Okay, you can negotiate. The, the carriers will negotiate that within with individual carriers. And if we can't come to an agreement, then it'll go to arbitration. That's par for the course of past national agreements where, where all kinds of stuff is left gray to be hammered out and fine tuned later. Needless to say, that never works out very well. For, uh, for, for, for the workers. And, and, and so, yeah, there's a very, very good chance that these tentative agreements that brought a temporary end to the possibility of a strike, that these could be voted no. There, there's some X factors. There's definitely some people who are who have been waiting for two, you know, for the last two or three years for for the back pay check. And those who were thinking about quitting, you know, well, geez, if I hang on till this thing's resolved, I can I'll get a few thousand dollars and then I'll quit. Some workers are just going to get fatigued. Some just want it over. Some are going to feel demoralized that, you know, even if I vote it down, then then Biden and Congress is just going to ram this down our throats anyway. But 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 the temperature check is hot. It, 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 it is hot where it goes and how that plays out. That that remains to be seen. And I, and I just want to add on the whole idea of a strike and the you know, what it would cost the economy and all of that. Railroad workers do not want to destroy the economy. Railroad workers do not want to sabotage an already fragile economy and and further disrupt an already dysfunctional supply chain uh, because of how the carriers have operated. And railroad workers, their friends and family, they need beer and all the other consumer commodities that, that, you know, could get disrupted. So nobody wants that. But this is the last resort to, to, to resist this um, one-sided class warfare. Yeah, and, and Mark, I appreciate you highlighting that because I think that is important to note, particularly with the demonization of workers that's been happening in the corporate media. I mean, for folks listening, if you've never spoken to people who have been part of a strike, who have thought of one, I've never met anybody in you know the 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 more than ten years of journalism that I've done and speaking to union members 
I've never heard one person that was like, yeah, I'm really excited for the disruption that this is going to cause everyone. <laughs> like, that's not why you, that is why a strike is the last resort because it is disruptive also to the workers themselves. So I think that that's, I'm, I'm very glad that you highlighted that. And so I'm curious also in terms of what you're talking about with the, with the temperature check and people feeling different ways, what is the timeline that we're at right now? What are we looking at coming up in the fall in terms of votes or in terms of going back to the negotiating table or, or, or things like that? So the way I'm understanding it, so synopsis uh, summaries have been mailed out to the different bargaining committees, uh, the general chairman of, of uh, the respective unions on the respective properties. And, and there's, there's going to be uh, question and answer sessions. Some of those may be in person, some of those may be Zoom. Uh, so th there will be a period for that. And, and there may be a little feedback. There may be uh, what, what the BLET statement said that, you know, that they will be soliciting some input. And, and so uh, they may take some of that input and then come back to the carriers to, to really hammer out the, the, the verbiage, which will then be presented to, to the memberships for a ratification vote. And so by the time it gets to that stage, they're projecting towards the middle middle end of November at, at best. And I'm sure it's purely coincidental, but, but that'll be after the midterm elections. I, I, I can't say it, state it as a fact, so, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> but it does make one wonder, does it not? Um, <laughs> well, and I, I, I am also curious about what happens in the meantime. Are, are workers then experiencing retaliation because this is an ongoing threat of a strike? Uh, have you heard anything like that happening? I haven't heard of, of anything like that. It's pretty hard for them to terrorize us much more than they already are. So, so intimidation and harassment towards people who stand up, that, that's not new. That, that's kind of always been what, uh, an old saying on the railroad. Uh, the, you know, the more conservative types would, would uh, you know, you, you, want, you, know, you better, you, you want to keep a low profile there because, because if they want to get you, they, they can and will. And that is true to an extent. And, and all you can do is just we, we, when we when we know that we're outspoken, we, we just try to dot our eyes and cross our T's and uh, make sure that we're in compliance, which is not easy to do, considering we have volumes of different rule books. And, and then on top of the rule books, you have daily uh, you have general orders and things that changes uh, uh, page two on this rule book. Uh, this paragraph, second line is changed to read this. But but we all do our best, the, the best we can to uh, walk the straight and narrow line to uh, make it harder, make it harder for them to uh, to victimize us. So finally, I'm, I'm, I am curious because this is and I understand if this is an awkward question, but particularly because RWU is a more recent union, if you compare it to things like the UAW or UMWA. How do rank and file feel about the union leadership and the way that they're represented by union leadership in these dealings? Well, first, uh, just a minor quote. So, so Railroad Workers United it is not a union per se. Best, uh, the, the best way to consider us would be an opposition caucus of rank and file workers uh, 
trying to work within each of the 12 respective unions to push towards unity, solidarity, internal democracy, and, and trying to find a way to, to act as one. Because if the question gets posed, how did it get so bad? That is the fundamental reason that, that, that because they've, they've played divide and conquer o- over these years and, and the same conditions that led uh, Eugene Deb back in the uh, 1893, 1894 to uh, uh, organize the American Railway Union, be, uh, trying to organize railroad workers into one industrial union because he was tired of the backstabbing and the scabbing of different unions. And the American Railway Union was crushed in the aftermath of the Pullman strike. And, and we feel we're trying to, we've been, we, we founded in 2008. And so we've been trying to pick up on that legacy of trying to organize rail workers to act and unite as one, whatever form that takes. And all the years that I worked, if, if people would grumble, why are we in 12, why are we, in, you know, 13, 14, you know, now it's about 12 before it was 13, 14, 15, you know, why are we in so many unions? We should all be as one. That's kind of been a common sentiment that we should all be in, 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 in one union, that, that, that this whole divide and conquer thing plays only into the hands of the carriers. And the average worker, they've always been less than satisfied with, with the union leadership. But with what's going down right now, they're, they're really hot. And, and you see these comments, you know, oh, the, the unions rollicking with the carriers, uh, uh, oh, the, the union leader, he took a big bushel of money, a briefcase full of money. And, and while it reflects the sentiment of, of, of being disgruntled uh, with the existing leadership as presently constituted, those thoughts are really an obstacle to avoid getting at the real issues. They just have a different thought process. Their, their, their thought process is to make a deal and collaborate with, with the bosses. And, and the starting point is, you know, what will they give us? And what I and we try to advocate is our starting point has to be, what are we entitled to as workers and what are we entitled to as human beings? Let's start from there. We're still a ways from that, but that's what we're, that's what we strive for. And there's anger and frustration, but it also, it, 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 it can degenerate into demoralization when there's no, when there's nothing on the horizon, when there, when there's no sign of anything to, to hope for. And, and one thing we, we, we try to inspire with, with the lessons of labor's history and people resisting right now today and, and to, to, to find a way to be a part of that and to not let demoralization, but to let that, to, to turn that anger into a constructive outlet to, to find a way towards dignified resistance. Very well put. And uh, I, I love, I love the idea of bringing up the past to uh, to help contextualize the present and, and get inspiration from. So, Mark, thank you so much for sharing all of this important context and reality with people who are certainly not getting it from corporate media. Where should folks go to keep up to date on what's going on, or where's a good place to follow this story? Our website, railroadworkersunited.org. When you go to the website, there should be a uh, pop-up that invites you to j- get on our mailing list. And among other things, we put out a, uh, a, a weekly email newsletter, which captures some of the most up-to-date 
stories and analysis of what's going on. And so obviously the last several weeks, it, it's been heavily weighted toward, towards all of this, but um, the website's a good place to start. Well, we're grateful to the internets for making that <laughs> possible. <laughs> Don't trust corporate media, go to the actual source. And so Mark, thank you again for taking the time. And all of us here at Project Censored are pulling for you and the your fellow rail workers. Thank you very much on behalf of Railroad Workers United for having us on and, and to uh, to be able to present our case. It's uh, we're up against a lot of opposition. You know, it's it's kind of disproportionate us, you know. So in and and any uh, any arena that we have to be able to get our story, we're we're greatly appreciated and and personally greatly appreciative and honored to be here. So thank you very much. We wanna smash, crash, smash, smash, blast the system. We wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd out. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Think about a criminal minds, political ties, habitualized, alibis, guys, and other guys in democracy.